0: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart.
1: Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company,
0: Golden, Colorado.
2: Today's episode of the Analytics Podcast is brought to you by Paul Cellular. Paul Cellular was created to give a better option for everyone looking for premium wireless phone service for less cost with straightforward plans, no strings attached, no confusing fine print. Paul strives to be the best value in wireless while supporting their customers with the service that they deserve and that they expect. Their mission quite simple to provide the best user experience possible for everyday life. They got you covered nationwide in the U.S. with unlimited talk, text, and premium. fast LTE data plans, hotspot coverage with no additional cost in all 50 states and the U.S. Caribbean regions with additional coverage available in both Canada and Mexico. Plans also include unlimited free Wi-Fi calls internationally when calling U.S. lines and unlimited text and data across 210 countries. There are no credit checks. There are no contracts. There are no overage costs. You can just live life and focus on you. Life is better with pulse
1: If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moran Analytics Podcast, talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran.
2: What's up podcast fans? How you doing? Welcome to episode number 115 of the More Analytics Podcast, presented by Paul Cellular. Today's Tuesday, April 30th, last day of April already. That's just crazy. It's going by so fast. Thank you, as always, for downloading and for listening. If you have not yet subscribed, please go ahead and do so. Coming up on the show today, I have CBS Sports draft writer Chris Trapasso. He's going to be with me. We're talking Buffalo Bills draft. From start to end, we're going to go through every single player that they drafted. I'm going to get Chris's take on them, where he had them ranked on his big board, where he sees them as a fit for the Bills. Does he like the pick? Does he not like the pick? Good stuff from Chris, who's become one of the better known and respected NFL draft writers in the industry today. A Western New York native. I've known him probably for about a decade now. I will warn you, the audio is not great. On Chris's end, his cell phone, we had a couple connectivity issues here and there nothing crazy though and overall the content is just great muscle and stuff if you're a bills fan you'll get a lot out of it so i'll have chris for you in just a minute also i have usually i have the running with joe on fridays but because of the enormity of the episode of game of thrones on sunday i had to get my man joe in today for this podcast he's a big game of thrones fan And I didn't want to wait and let it sit around and fester until Friday. He had some thoughts and some takes. So I said, let's just get him on today. So we're talking start to end Game of Thrones. So I got that. I got Chris. Busy episode today. A lot to get to. Not going to waste any time here at the top. Let's just get right down to business. Here's my interview with CBS Sports draft writer Chris Trapasso. Followed by a special Game of Thrones only edition of The Running With Joe. All right, my guest today is an NFL draft writer for CBS Sports. He's a Western New York native and a guy whose work I've been following for quite a while now. Good dude, too. Talking about Chris Grapasso. What's going on, Chris? How you doing, man?
1: Hey, Pat. Thanks for having me on the podcast.
2: Uh, The pleasure is definitely all mine. I've wanted to hook up with you for a while. In fact, we've talked to DMs for a while. I was going to have you on before the draft, and then at certain points, I said, you know what? I'd rather at this point hold off and get you right after the draft and get your expertise on uh, a bunch of players that I'm sure you know a lot more about than I do because you've been at this for a while. What a grind has been for you. Is it this time of year? It's like I can't imagine how much work this must be this time of year, say a month or two leading up to the draft right until now.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, I was all for taping one of these before the draft too, but I I was incredibly busy. Sure. I have a 21-month-old daughter, and then we just had our second child the end of march so we have that going on that dynamic in the house and then everything draft, and not just the last couple of of months in terms of watching the high profile guys but from february to april for most of, of what i'm doing is watching guys 100 through 300 because my job is to not just know all about top 50 but as many prospects as possible
2: You spend so much time preparing for the draft. Does it feel like sometimes, even though the draft is three days now, which I personally hate, I I like the old school days where it happened over the weekend, two days. But anyway, does it happen so quick, even though it's three days? Does it feel like almost like a blink of an eye because you spend so much time preparing and studying these guys getting ready for the draft, and then it seems like in a blink of an eye, it's over, and now you're already on the 2020. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, That's kind of what I was getting at about when it was over. On Saturday, that I was like, man, it's over. Like, there's there's so much buildup, and it. I feel this way. I know a lot of NFL, or almost every NFL fan just, uh, feels this way. You probably do too. That those last couple weeks in April leading up to it, was like, come on, get here already. The draft should be earlier, and then it's over. Like, especially on the third day, sixth and seventh round, those picks were like flying in. Yeah. So it's it's a yeah, it's a strange feeling, but it it, it is relieving, and, and it's it, it does give me a pretty. Nice feeling of like I did all the so homework. I knew about all these prospects. There were certainly a few guys that some teams picked late that I was like, uh, I don't really know who that guy is. Um, <laughs> but it, it is fun to to have some knowledge of you know a lot of these players or, or, or almost all of them who either get drafted or are um, ultimately signing as unregistered agents.
2: We're going to talk about the Buffalo Bills draft and their players in a few minutes. Before that, though, I just want to spend a couple minutes. One of the things I like to do on this podcast when I have a sports media guy on or woman is give fans an opportunity to know a little bit more about you. Like in your case, you are a Western New York native. Where exactly did you grow up? I grew up in Medina. Um,
1: Graduated from Medina High School in 2006. My family, though, my my mom and my dad were both from North Carolina, uh, and they like their. I think their grandparents came up here in the early 1900s from like coal mining Pittsburgh area. Um, so yeah, so my family has deep roots in Western New York and my dad got a job at the high school when my twin sister and I were like four or five months old. They bounced around. They were in Buffalo. Uh, they got married here. Then a job that my mom got moved them to Dallas and then they moved to San Francisco, had my sister and I there. And then they're like, you want to come back to Western New York? And this is 1988. And then, um, my dad was looking around for jobs. He usually um was he just re- or not just retired he retired about five years ago from the school district he was a school psychologist looking around for jobs just anywhere and there was nothing besides Medina so it's kind of a ways out but I really like this it. small town it's 40 minutes from Rochester 40-45 minutes from Buffalo um it's about an hour a solid hour to Orchard Park but we've been going to games since I was like three years old so yeah it, it's Small town, there's a little bit more happening here now. Small restaurants, bars opening, which is nice, a little more convenient. But yeah, I, I grew up in Medina, and uh, I really loved every second of it.
2: Now, I've known you for probably a good decade now. When did you first get mm-hmm. the writing bug? Where could you feel yourself wanting to be a writer? Was it when you were a real young kid, high school, college? Was there some point where you said, you know what, I really enjoy journalism, and I like writing sp- specifically about sports? Was there a time that you could remember that this is something that when you became an adult, that you were going to want to do,
1: yeah, it definitely was not when I was a kid. I I would like always say that I'm was the classic uh, middle school and and high school kid that like hated when a teacher would say, "Hey, this essay needs to be three pages or five pages," and then in the beginning of college, when professors would say, "needs to be ten pages," I just didn't like it. When I was at college at Valparaiso in Indiana, my dad went there. My sister also went there the thing, which was a lot of fun. And it definitely helped being there with my twin, you know, eight hours away in the Midwest, just totally different culture. It was in my sophomore year at Valparaiso that I went there for sports management. Um, I definitely, I've always just loved sports, you know, bills from, like I said, I was going to games when I was three, but then it was just my whole family like obsessed with the bills, but I knew I wanted to do something in sports. In the first year or two, at Valpo, it was like, you obviously don't do a lot inside your major those first two years, but I was starting to uh, see what other things I could do outside of just going to class. And my sister, actually, who worked in public relations, she I don't even know why she did this, but she started writing for the school paper. And just, I don't know what it was, like just seeing my sister's name in the, in the college paper, I just thought it was the coolest thing. And... I just randomly was, Hey, maybe I should start writing for the paper. And I really knew I couldn't write about anything else besides sports in uh, the next semester. So I think my spring of my sophomore year at Velpo, I started writing for the paper. They had an open spot for a radio show. A kid down the hall for me that like was as obsessed with sports as I am said he would do it with me. We did like a Saturday or a Sunday morning, like two hour NFL show that I'm sure about. Five people listen to Um, but it was so much fun and writing just they actually let me write just like nfl columns even though like it was not that huge of a thing i mean i played the chicago bitters um so yeah it was then and then everything kind of took off from there that i knew at that point that even though i was going to have a degree in sports management that i wanted to take more communications classes and journalism classes which i did my last two and a half years at Bubble.
2: Now you have been at a lot of major website publications through the years, Honing Your Craft, Yahoo Sports, uh, Bleacher Report, Buffalo Rumblings. You ran that site for a year. I remember that very well. You did work with NFL.com and of course now Sports.com. How much have each of those experiences helped mold your expertise into what you do today?
1: They really helped a lot. And I would say Bleacher Reports was the start of it and and probably helped the most because right around when I was just talking about that, you know, my sophomore year in college and I wanted to write for the paper, that's when I like came across Bleach Report and I have like a funny story about it that any listeners probably remember going to this, but on the Buffalo Bills website, Chris Brown, who's still their media guy there, used to have like a blog like and this is 2008 so like blogs were kind of like a newish thing then mm-hmm. he had a blog called inside the bills and like every i know what it was every friday maybe he just did like a links post like oh like go read this at the buffalo news and this at fox sports and go to town on the bill and i remember seeing a headline and i was like what's bleacher report like he included an article into it and i clicked it and saw it and it was just a brand new site that just started. And then I remember seeing like sign up or like right here, and at the time they were wanting and needing writers, so I like I was like, wow, I can be writing on the internet. That'd be cool. After I got going, they started to have a little bit more strict guidelines, and they you know like they like they almost had to apply, and they turned people down. So I was lucky that I got in. I mean, who knows? Maybe they would have turned me down if if it was a year or two later. But Bleacher Report beyond just the opportunity that they gave me. Um, the fact, and this is funny, the fact that at the time, the bills and basically any other team, any other event were just Bleach Report did not have the best reputation. I think the name probably didn't help and that they just didn't have any credentials. Right. So like, I would instantly thought as a journal and like, you know, that as a, a journalism guy, like you want to get in the locker room, you want to talk to players, you want to get quotes, you want to. So I would apply for those things for press passes to events and nope, sorry, we only accept, you know, Buffalo News or radio and TV. And so what I had to do to be able to have content to write about was like watching the games over again, um, just giving my opinions. So instead of just writing an article, which I'm not disrespecting those articles, but instead of writing an article with a bunch of quotes because I didn't have that opportunity, it had to be analysis of the team. You know, outlook for the next season, recapping the last game or last season. So I think that, like almost the fact that I didn't have access, kind of helped me. And it's funny that now, like I'm not for CBS, I don't do a lot of, you know, uh, stories that have quotes in it or interviews with players. It's a lot of analysis and it kind of goes back to those really, you know, foundational days at Bleach Report where it was like, well, we can't give you access to things, so you just have to write your opinions and your analysis. So that's kind of funny how that worked out.
2: All right, well, let's get to your area of expertise. Let's talk about the NFL draft, and more specifically today, the Buffalo Bills draft. I'm going to run through these players, every pick, and I want to get your insight, your expertise, your thoughts on each of them. Let's start with the obvious here. First round, ninth overall, Ed Oliver. I know you had him number two overall on your big board. What do you think of Ed Oliver as a player, and more specifically in regards to the Buffalo Bills, how he's going to fit in with this organization?
1: Yeah, this was, to me, the best pick in the first round. And, I mean, to get the number two overall player at number nine, I'm not going to say he's going to come in instantly and beat Kyle Williams right away. But, I mean, I almost think that it's a dream come true for Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott because he's about as close as you can get to a Kyle Williams, to a Geno Atkins, to an Aaron Donald. Um, I think he has superstar potential, all-pro potential. Um, He's so quick. He's so athletic plays with a high motor uh he's just fits the need and the value which i think they got great value obviously number two overall player at number nine overall uh it's just a perfect pick for the bills and leading up to the draft a lot of people did not think he was going to be there i didn't think he was going to be there either there was too many teams in front that i thought could use a little defensive line help so when he was there at night i I was almost sure that he was going to be the pick and i think the Bills got a really really rare prospect in at oliver
2: Let's play a little bit of a hypothetical. If Ed Oliver would have went maybe to seven or something like that, who do you think the Bills would have targeted with that ninth pick? Had Ed Oliver not been available and the rest of the board played out. Do you think it would have been Christian Wilkins? Probably would have been the guy they would have taken at nine or someone else, maybe Uh, a lineman.
1: Either, either him because of the character that, that, and because he's just a really high four player that he was good at Clemson for three years from a sophomore year on. I think Jonah Williams, though, was probably a pretty... I mean, they ultimately passed on Jonah Williams, obviously, because Ed Oliver was there. But with the connection to Brian Gable, he was also a very processy type guy, just seemed very prepared, high character, fundamentally sound. They needed some offensive line, obviously, with their uh, second-round pick. They addressed that. Um, So I think either Christian Wilkins, if TJ Hawkinson was there, I think they would have maybe considered him to me, I think Jonah Williams would have been the pick had Oliver not been on the board.
2: I have no idea why I like to play hypothetical so much. Doesn't really matter now, does it? Let's move on to the second round. The Bills move up two spots to, from 40 to 38. And I'm not surprised that they moved up at all. I don't think people were surprised they moved up at all. We've gotten to know Brandon Bean and know that he moves up and down the board. He's not afraid to move up, that's for sure. I will say this, though. With D.K. Metcalf on the board and wide receiver or Irv Smith Jr., the tight end on the board, I kind of expected them to take a skill position guy, perhaps one of those two or maybe another player at that position. They ended up taking Cody Ford, who was the second-ranked guard on your board and the seventh-ranked tackle on your board. Are you surprised? Actually, I don't want to say are you surprised because I don't think taking an offensive lineman in the first two rounds was surprising, were you well? You know what? I mean, were you mildly surprised that they took Cody Ford in the second round after trading up a couple spots? And what do you think of him as a player, and how he's going to fit in with the Buffalo Bills?
1: Yes or no? I was surprised um, that it wasn't one of those receivers like you mentioned. I, I was thinking, that if DK Metcalf falls all the way to them or gets close, they could move up. They had the ten picks, so when it wasn't him. I was a little surprised, but I'm not surprised because Cody Ford kind of fits the mold of what Brandon Bean saw in Carolina. They always, they prioritize bigger, stronger offensive linemen. Darrell Williams, uh, who ultimately re with the Panthers, this offseason was rumored to be, I mean, he ultimately wasn't, obviously, but was rumored to be a big free agent target for the Bills. And, and he came out of Oklahoma and was just, you know, 6'5", 330-pound, like mauler at right tackle. And that's the kind of player Cody Ford is. I think the Bills in the post-pick press conference or whatever you want to call it, they did call him a right tackle. I think he'll ultimately best be best at right guard because he's athletic for his size. I don't know if he has the quickness in his feet to survive at right tackle in the NFL. But as a run blocker, he's just going to destroy people. He's a great run blocker. He can get to the second level pretty quickly. He's not out of control. He's not much of a waistbender. bender he's a pretty just refined tackle. I, I, I was only just worried about because he's so big and so wide, I, I don't know if he will be able to handle if he's facing a smaller speed rusher on the outside, but it makes sense. They do need to build the trenches. Their offensive line really held back the offense last year. And obviously in free agency we saw they, you know, signing six um offensive linemen. I I like that Brandon Bean had said, Hey, we're not gonna have Josh Allen pressure 45 to 47 percent of the time like he was last year
2: now this next pick is the one that i've been really looking forward to talking to you about i'll tell you why in a second so cody ford not much of a surprise offensive line certainly not a surprise at all with the second pick but now you get to round three the bills stay pat at pick 74 and almost everyone certainly me figured all right man there you go you're going to get their tight end or they're going to get a wide receiver maybe a defensive end but no they go out and they take a running back, Devin Singletary. And they take a running back in a crowded backfield. They already have LaShawn McCoy. They already got Frank Gore. They signed TJ Yeldon. what, like a week before the draft? And then they go out and they draft a fourth running back now, Devin Singletary. The reason why I'm excited to talk to you about him is because on your big board, you actually have Devin Singletary as your number one running back on your board, ahead of Jacob Sanders, anyone else. He's number one on your board. What is it that you like about him that would make him number one on your board? And also, I'd have to imagine, this is where it could get a little confusing. The Bills have a stacked backfield already. that they signed Singletary, I feel like they didn't draft the guy in the third round. It's a high pick to have somebody basically be a redshirt, so to speak, as a rookie, and not play much his first year.
1: And Brandon being gushed about him. In the post draft press conference, and in a lot of what he said was exactly what I thought. So though, that he can make you miss in a phone booth. That his film was the most fun that I watched. I think Brandon Bean said that too. Of any of these running backs, he is extremely elusive. That the combine running four six six and being a little bit on the smaller side that pushed him down to a lot of people. He didn't have the combine and anyone wa- and everyone watched the film of all these running backs, Singletary's to me was pretty much far and away outside of David Montgomery from Iowa State who went a pick after him. Um or a few picks after him, I think, to the Chicago Bears. Those two were in their own category. That and Singletary, to me, his vision between the tackles was really good. He handled, you know, those duties as being that bell towel running back. He wasn't you know, a guy who came on the field on third downs and caught screens. He handled a heavy workload, didn't deal with injuries, had 32 touchdowns two years ago. And I think he plays faster than 466, six, but I, I'm not a guy that wants my running back to be lowering his head and running guys over. That looks cool. It makes for fun highlights, but you're not going to last. I don't care how big you are, you're not going to last. In the NFL, if you're doing that, and the running backs have the shortest shelf life of obviously any position in the NFL. I want you to be able to make guys miss. I think that's why Sean McCoy has been able to last as long as he has, and is still a good player. He doesn't take a lot of big hits. He can make you miss behind the line, at the line, at the second level, and the third level, and Devin Singletary has that similar type of just lateral jump-cutting, flexible ankles, flexible hips, Explosion! He's just a really, really good running back, and I think if he went to another college besides Florida Atlantic, we would have been talking about him probably around earlier, and it wouldn't be as surprising that I had him as my number one running back.
2: I'm being speculatory here, and for you to answer, you'd be doing the same. But Brandon Bean made it clear in his comments, at least during his presser, that he considers Lashawn McCoy the starter, and he'll be the starter. Do you necessarily buy that, even with? The addition of Frank Gore and TJ Elden, and now drafting a running back in the third round. He got a guy who did not play well last year and the offensive line had a lot to do with that. Everybody knows that, but a lot of people who study running backs and are critics of Lashawn McCoy say that he didn't play well last year. He wasn't hitting the hole hard. He was certainly didn't like getting hit. That was kind of obvious to anyone watching. He's a year older. He's got a big cap number. that The Bills can save a lot of money if they cut him. When you look forward and project into September, do you completely buy into what Brandon Bean is saying right now, or do you think he's just saying what he needs to say right now to keep one of his star players happy?
1: I'm not going to say completely buy into it, but I will say that I would be surprised if LaShawn McCoy is not the stunning running back in week one for the Bills. And you do make a good point. He does have a high cap number. He is a year older. But I don't think that the cap is as big of a deal for the Bills this year, or even looking into next year, as it has been, and as it was during the Doug Whaley era and before that, um, so freeing up some cap space. I don't. I mean, they still have around twenty to twenty-five million dollars this right. year and on next year. In terms of what happened last year with McCoy, very quickly, I've noticed in the three years watching him that if his blocking isn't good and he goes into a game knowing that, it seems like that's when he dances a lot and that he will break off two or three ridiculous rounds where he reverses his field and picks up his yards when he should have lost two. But that also leads to a lot of negative plays too, where he's almost not confident in his blockers. and doesn't trust them. and doesn't just fall forward into a couple of yards. So I think if the blocking is better, we can see maybe not obviously in his prime LaShawn McCoy, but still a good running back. And one last thing about this, and, and I talked about it with Cody Ford, I think I mean, it seems almost blatantly obvious to me. Brandon B. and Sean McClendon want to recreate what they had in Carolina, in Buffalo, when they were winning 10 to 12 games a year. They were making deep runs in the playoffs. They obviously went to the Super Bowl. Um, and those teams, Cam Newton was completing about 55% of his passes, hitting a two to three big plays down the field each game. And they were running the ball a lot and playing great defense. That's not the template for the for you know the Kansas City Chiefs or the Patriots and some of the other high-flying teams but that's what they know but I feel a little more confident in those changes if they were trying to pass and stop the pass like some of the other smarter better teams are doing of course but I think it's only two or three years ago that the Panthers were doing that and they followed that model and they were running it with Jonathan Stewart and a lot just a stable of running If there is a team in the NFL that can keep and feed four running backs, it's probably Carolina, and it's probably the Buffalo Bills.
2: That's a good point. I'll tell you, the running back position is going to be very interesting to follow throughout the summer and over through training camp if they don't make any moves beforehand. All right, so anyway, let's move on to the next guy. Dawson Knox, Buffalo trades both their picks in the fourth round, 112 and 131 to move up into the late third and 96. They get a tight end prospect slash project Dawson Knox. Now, I know that's one guy of this group of Buffalo Bills drafties that you're not all that high on. What are your thoughts right now on Dawson Knox?
1: Yeah, I, I didn't like the move, and that was more of why I didn't like the pick overall. It's not really the player. I didn't have him super far down on my board. I had him outside my top 200. I think he's my number 11 tight end. I'm not sure how many tight ends went in front of him. And just to trade two fourth-round picks that, to me, are pretty valuable to move up 16 slots, I believe it was, to get a player that really wasn't that productive in college. And, of course, he had D.J. Metcalf there, he had A.J. Brown, DeMarcus Lodge was another good receiver, but he really wasn't involved in the passing offense whatsoever. So you're hoping that you could just uncover this great receiver that's never really been a great receiver. He's a great story. He's a walk-on. He did test pretty well at the combine. And he's a decent blocker. So he kind of reminds me of Tyler Croft, who the Bills signed in trade. When he came out of Rutgers, it was kind of the same deal. Not crazy productive, decently athletic, decent blocker, or maybe a number two tight end. So that's just, I didn't think he was someone that they needed to trade up for. Did they have some intelligence that another team was going to pick him and they really liked him? Maybe. But yeah, of all the Bills picks, that was my least favorite.
2: In the fifth round, they didn't have a four. So in the fifth, they take Vashon Joseph, a linebacker from Florida. You graded it a B-plus and wrote, when he's on his A-game, Joseph could be as productive as any linebacker in this class because of his quick-titch athleticism, speed, block, defeating skills and awareness in coverage. Too often, he fails to wrap up as a tackler. This is probably a death pick, death in special teams at this point in the draft. Are you good with this pick? Do you like it? B-plus suggests that you do.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. His high-end flashes are starting caliber, and he fits what Sean McDermott wants in his linebackers. He's smaller, he's not 250 pounds, he's really fast. Um, and I just like, there's so many of those linebackers in college now, just going through all the film that I've watched, but Joseph can beat tackles with his hands. He can slide under them, dip under them. He's really athletic, has a lot of speed. But yeah, like there'll be times where he will read the play perfectly and and get there in a hurry, maybe even behind the line, and then he'll just like dive at the running back and miss him. That also leads to some big hits sometimes, but I think if he was just a little more under control as he was approaching running backs or making tackles um, in coverage, then he would be a, a better tackler. And obviously, at around one and, and uh, 230 pounds with all that uh, athleticism, he's good in coverage. He's a zone guy that you want attacking downhill on. Shallow crosses, on slants, he can run with some tight ends who are a little smaller, with some running back. So, kind of fits the mold of what the Bills want at linebacker. And just like you said, it, it's good depth. And because of those uh, athletic traits, you really like them on special teams. And
2: in the sixth round, they got a guy that I think that you consider a steal Jaquan Johnson. He's a safety from Miami. You graded that in A minus, and you wrote if Johnson were a few inches taller and had more height on his frame, he probably would have gone on day two. Stellar run stopper because of his football IQ, twitch, and speed. And he almost always is in ideal positioning coverage, can match up in the slot. I'll tell you, safety is a kind of low-key death problem for the Buffalo Bills. So this could be a guy who could, even in the sixth round, this sounds like a guy who could stick around on this 53-man roster.
1: Yeah, definitely, Pat. That's a good point. I mean, we did not hear anything about safety being a need for the Bills. Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer have been so good these past two seasons, but they've both been healthy. And I always think back to that playoff game against the Jaguars. Micah Hyde went down in that game and that, I mean, not that Blake Bortles did anything fantastic in the air, but they were able to complete some passes down the field or at least at the intermediate level after Micah Hyde got hurt in that game. So the Bills haven't really had to deal with it in the regular season, but they want and they probably need someone that can come in and play right away. He, was a, a high-level producer for the last two seasons at Miami. He was a team character. He's a high-character guy. So that certainly fits with what some of them at want. And I mean, you just said what I wrote—that he you don't really see him where he needs to change directions because he doesn't know where the football is. He's always around the ball, whether it be the run, whether it be coverage. Didn't have a lot of ball skills in terms of his production um, in coverage, but did have over ninety tackles shows that he not only is really athletic and is and is quick and is fast but that he's reading plays very quickly smaller guy at, at um, around just under six foot and around 200 pounds but because of that he is able to you know if a running back comes out of the backfield motions out he can come down from either a free safety spot or a strong safety spot and cover those running backs so that also helps him a lot he's not going to be an all-pro, but I think he's going to be someone that's going to stick and is going to be one of those valuable niche players at the back end of the roster.
2: With their last two picks in the seventh round, the Bills took an edge rusher, Daryl Johnson from North Carolina AT&T, and a tight end, Tommy Sweeney from Boston College. Don't really need to spend time talking about them. Their seventh round picks, given the state of the roster, they're going to have an uphill fight to make the 53. Probably more destined to have a good chance to make the practice squad, if anything else. So we will not spend time talking on them. Instead, one thing I really like to do at the end of every draft is instead of draft grades or going around the league and giving people the label of draft winner or loser, I like to look inside the team itself to have and find a draft winner or loser. And for me, when it comes to a draft winner, I look at a cornerback like Levi Wallace because he became a starter last year And sure, they signed Kevin Johnson and brought EJ Gaines back. But at the end of the day, by not taking a cornerback early, especially in that second round, they moved up for Cody Ford. There was a run of, I think, three corners, including Greedy Williams, that went within a handful of picks after him. So for that reason alone, I would consider Levi Wallace um, a Buffalo Bills draft winner. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, definitely. And that was a position that throughout the whole pre-draft process, a lot of people, including myself, thought, all right, the Bills will probably address it a second, third, maybe fourth round, but I I was almost certain that they would pick a corner at some point. So you're right, Levi Wallace did play really well uh, down the stretch last season. He has to be the biggest winner because had they have picked a Jalon Williams or a Trayvon Mullen or certainly a Greedy Williams, who was kind of a household name during the pre-draft process, um, I think he would have you know had a hard time keeping that spot. So they must feel really good about him and those other two guys that you mentioned, Kevin Johnson and obviously B.J. Gaines, to kind of rounding out that number two corner spot.
2: Conversely, on the other end, I would consider LaShawn McCoy a draft loser, not necessarily because I think he's going to get run out of town just because the Buffalo Bills drafted a rookie with the 74th overall pick in the third round, but if for no other reason, because that they did that and they already have Gore and they just signed Yeldon. At the very least, he's going to hear whispers, that's for sure. Whether it's from the media, fans, whoever over the next handful of months, maybe that weighs on him a little bit. And I would also add, though not that big of a deal, Ty Niseki and Adrian Waddle at tackle. I don't think it's a good thing that the Bills took Cody Ford in the second round, especially if they do play him at tackle, as things probably stood. No one knows for sure, but Niseki was probably scheduled or penciled in, I should say, to start at right tackle this year, while Adrian Waddle was probably the swing tackle, if Ford does indeed play right tackle, like it seems he might start out there, that very well could push Niseki from a starter if he doesn't move inside the guard or something like that, that could make him the swing tackle, and Waddle would become the fourth tackle on the roster and maybe not even active on game days, at least not at the beginning. No one knows for sure, and again, that's to a much lesser extent. I think their spot on the roster, both of them are secure but I would consider them the draft quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes when I say this draft losers. What about you?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think with, with Shirley McCoy, that, you know, everything that you just brought up makes perfect sense. I I think I'm not going to say that they are sending him a message by drafting Devin Singletary in the third round, but he didn't have a great season. And I'm sure the bills coaches, their front office realized that it was mainly due to the offensive line. That's why I think they addressed for part of the reason. Um, that they've addressed offensive lines so hard, it's free agency. And then up front, I think you mentioned it with Ty and Becky and um, Adrian Waddell that really, to me, it would just be anyone that they brought in on the offensive line. I mean, Spencer Long, they signed before the free agent period, he's played center and guard. And then to draft someone in Cody Ford in the second round, I mean, you don't draft and trade up. For a guard that early at 38 to not have him play right away as a rookie. So, John Feliciano, that they brought in from the Raiders, another one who played guard. In Feliciano and in Saki, they were two like career backups to this point who had played well when they only needed to play. Um, and I think that signing in Buffalo, they both probably thought, hey, they're giving me a chance to start, which I still think either of those two could start if have a great camp, obviously. But now to add another body that they just invested in, that's a good player that, you know, comes with a lot of accolades. I think for anyone up front, especially on the right side, I think it's a sleeper though. Deion Dawkins to me, I mean, he's been a good at times, but inconsistent, um, left tackle. And I always found it interesting that in the end of season press conference, Sean McDermott really didn't throw him under the bus, but just said we were not happy with Deion Dawkins, he was inconsistent, kind of sent him a message. And Ty Insecti, last year in Washington, when Trent Williams got hurt, he was playing left tackle and played really, really well. And you ask any Redskins fan or media member, and they'll say, hey, when Trent Williams left out, who's an elite offensive tackle, all pro type of guy, when he went out and Ty Insecti stepped in. The offense didn't really skip a lead. They didn't even really notice that Trent Williams wasn't out there. I don't know if the Bills have said what they have or their exact plan for Inseki, but if they are thinking, hey, maybe uh, we're going to put him at left tackle at 33, maybe for a season or two, and we are planning on moving Deion Dawkins a right tackle where he did play for a few seasons at Temple, now you bring bringing Cody Ford, says he's a right tackle. I don't think they're going to trade him. I don't think they're going to cut him, obviously, uh, going into his season, But he would be kind of a sleeper that, that the pick of Cody Ford was not the best for anyone on the offensive line. And I think it also includes uh, the end offense.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. All right, everyone. Give Chris a follow on Twitter at Chris Trapasso. And, of course, check out his work over at CBSSports.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for both. Thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate you. You did a really, and I'm not just saying this. I, I, I truly, I mean it. You did a really good job working at Draft this year. Well done, man. Well done.
1: All right, Pat. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Hi, my name is Matt Kundal, and this portion of the More Analytics podcast is powered by my company, Matt If you need a voice for your company videos, narration, e learning. Maybe it's your radio or TV ad, or even your phone system. Consider using my voice to tell your story. I'm not only a sponsor of this podcast, I'm also a regular listener, wrestling fan, and longtime supporter of the Buffalo Bills. For more, check out mattcundlevoice.com or click on the link in the show notes.
2: All right, it's an abbreviated, straightforward installment of the Running with Joe segment. I got Joe from New York City, Buffalo Wins on Twitter with me right now. Usually we do our stick on the Friday show, but man, this could not wait until Friday. You're a Game of Thrones dude. You've been down with the show since day one. While I was a late bloomer, I was late to the Thrones party. So I had to get you on today specifically to talk about Sunday night's epic episode. We'll hook up later this week or maybe next week to do our normal full segment. Anyway, regarding this This episode on Sunday, I consider it the greatest episode of TV that I personally have ever seen in my life for tons of reasons. But having said that, it wasn't without flaws. And before we talk a few specifics of the episode, generally speaking as a whole, did this third episode, The Battle of Winterfell, did it live up to your extremely, not just yours, everyone's extremely lofty expectations that came with it?
0: Yes, it was awesome. I mean we'll get into like the details of what could have been better but yeah it totally lived up to everything in terms of you know the anticipation would I put it as the best episode of the series that's a tough one i definitely put it in my top 3 easily like i think that episode the, the episode where cersei blew up the septon probably is where they really up there battle of the bastards the uh the episode the of uh, where the uh, white, the Blackwater episode, where, where uh, Stannis's troops came to invade King's Landy, like those are like the top four, like the Mount Rushmore, right there. And you put that up there, but yeah, it it was awesome. It was well shot. It was great.
2: I'm going to get into a few specifics in just a second here, but real quick, man, I've been reading in the hours that followed the airing of the episode on Twitter, a couple websites that I follow, Facebook, just opinions of some uh, some YouTube videos that I like to watch when it comes to Game of Thrones, and I don't want to say that they've been critical of the episode, but I would almost consider some of these reviews like lukewarm. That kind of blows me away because I'm like, again, it has to be the expectations just being through the roof. What more can you expect from an episode of a television show? Are you a little bit surprised to read here and see any critical reviews of this latest episode? I'm not sure what you're reading.
0: I, I, my Twitter feed and what I read and people I've talked to, like on my text exchanges and I'm talking like at least like 12 people that I've talked to on text, like friends of mine all love the episode. You know, I I don't know. I don't know. Look, if there's some critic out there who was not happy with it and I, you know, for whatever reasons and maybe I I thought it was great. So if there are people out there like they have legit mixed feelings about it, I mean, okay, sure. Maybe, maybe those are the people that don't like anything. I guess it's yeah. kind of like, you because know, it's, like, been, it's been
2: like that for a lot of the season, the first two episodes to lead up. I've heard a lot of people bitching and complaining that, you know, well, where's the action? Where's the action? Well, you got the action. And I'm talking specifically about like the ringer for an example. It wasn't a bad review. Their their um, their columns in their to- post talk, but it wasn't the greatest either. And I watched a series yeah. of like YouTube clips by some YouTube nerds who make these videos every week. And some of them were kind of disappointed with, the way things played out. I'll tell you what, let's get into a couple specifics. I am going to say there are a couple things I didn't like, and I wrote down a couple notes here. One, the general darkness of the episode, it was just too dark. And I'm talking literally speaking here to the point that I was getting frustrated. I get that it was probably done on purpose to, you know, to really illustrate the cold winter, the dead, the night, all that stuff. But sometimes I just want to see what the fuck's going on, you know? And also I'm not a sadist or anything like that, but I would have liked to have seen a, a bigger character of two, Die on the episode. Once the Whites breached that wall, they were killing everybody in sight. Yet at the end, it seemed like everyone except for most of the main characters died. But the mo- all the main characters, not all, but most of them lived. We'll talk about them in a in a second here. And last, I wrote down this: the the Night King raised the dead. It looked like doom. I would have liked to see at least one action sequence, a battle between a character and maybe someone. Who suddenly became undead that they loved, like maybe Jamie or or Podrick having to fight an undead Lady Brienne or Arya having to face off against an undead Gentry, something like that. What about you? What fell flat, if anything, fell flat for you with this episode?
0: Um, I would say, yeah. Look, the, the general darkness of it was a little bit annoying in the beginning. So i I watched it at a bar. the The, the episode last night. They, there's a bar in my neighborhood that does screenings for this, and it's like hardcore 60 people good crowd we're off say again good crowd oh yeah it's that's the entire crowd is there for this so like you can imagine and i can get into that like when we go through this review like what parts everyone erupted at but like the point is we watched it on the projector they have a projector tv there so it's like it projects like it's projector basically where the screen comes down it was a little dark you know, for that in terms of like kind of trying to make out what was happening. And I would say it was, it was tough in the the first part of the episode, like until they, when they breached the wall, that's when I thought it got back to, okay, I can see everything, but everything kind of prior to them getting to Winterfell, like, you know, breaking into Winterfell, it was a little dark to make that out. Uh, but again, it's supposed to be dark. It's freaking the, the, the long night. And, you know, it's what you have snow and then you have all this stories. i like, yeah, it could have been a little bit more clearer, but I wouldn't put that in my, you know, stuck in my croft. I would say the lack of ghost did not have, make me happy. I mean, we saw ghost run and then we never saw him again. And then he was in the preview for the next episode. I've I've not been happy how they've used the dire wolves throughout this whole season, because I get throughout the whole show, because I guess you're, it's it's too expensive or who the hell knows. I mean, that's the reason they, they they say, and at this point, I'd rather I like the, I like the wolves way more than I like the dragons. So I would have a freaking giant German Shepherd be the be the wolf and be like just run and, and pretend to growl at someone. So that was probably would be what I would be most disappointed w- with it uh, in terms of what I felt flat. But again, I still thought it was awesome. Like this is like to me like you won by forty five points, but you missed a few, you know you missed a, f- a few free throws. So that's where I put it on in terms of that. Like give me more ghost. Yeah, the darkness was a little annoying. I was fine with the characters who died, like, in terms of, yeah, I could have probably saw a few other people died. And yes, your point about, you know, I I was predicting, like, yeah, there would be some, like, good, you know, it would be, like, Nightwalk, it would be the Whites versus their friends at some point, like you had just said, with, uh, like, someone coming back to the dead. Like, we could have seen. That would have been cool to see, but it was towards the end of the episode anyway, so I was still satisfied where that shit didn't really bug me that much you know, in terms of that.
2: All right, conversely, things I love. There's lots of things I love, but I highlighted three things. One, obviously, that it was Arya, not Jon or Daenerys or a dragon that was the one to end the Night King and and the dead. That was unexpected. I think that kind of came out of nowhere. All the reviews I read and all the speculation I've heard and my own thoughts had me leaning to thinking that, It would probably ultimately be if the Night King lost, which I didn't think he was going to, at least not in this episode. I thought it would have been Jon for sure. So that was a nice, pleasant surprise for me. I also liked when Tyrion and Sansa had a moment in the crypt where she realized that Tyrion's not such a bad dude. And it gets me wondering what's to come over these last few episodes. And I know you'll have a thought on that as well, because if you remember going back to the start of the season, I predicted that Tyrion was going to have some kind of, I said, a heel turn. I maybe he does something to help Sansa in a battle, an internal battle at some point with Daenerys at the end of the day. I have no idea, but there's something there, I think, between them two going forward. And lastly, just overall, man, I thought it was a really exciting episode. It was so well done that I forget that sometimes I'm watching a mid-season episode of a television show on HBO instead of a blockbuster budget movie franchise at the theater, like when I watch The Avengers at the movie theater this past week. I don't think anything ever made for television was quite like this. You know what I'm saying? Like, what about you? What did you like the most about this episode?
0: Um, I definitely thought, you know, Arya taking out the Night King was amazing. That whole last 10 minutes of the episode, once like, once and the bad dragon came to Winterfell and started blowing shit up. And it was like that last, like 15 minutes, 15 minutes where it was like, they looked like they were going to die. They had the awesome music and like the music was the scoring of this, of the series overall is amazing. It's like the best scoring. I mean, when you think about, they've done like 70 episodes, it's not like Rocky, you know, like we love Rocky. And one of the main reasons we probably love Rocky is the soundtrack. But when it comes to the soundtrack of Rocky, there's probably like what, like, you know, six, seven great songs on it. Cause you know, it's, it's fucking, it's eight hours when you view it in totality. Whereas this series is what 65 hours of more than that. I don't even know at this point where the hell we are, but like, it's like, it's literally three days worth of of shows. And like every episode has like an amazing music or anything along those lines. And like the scoring at the end, that creepy music where it was just like, everyone was dying with the piano. And then Aria comes out of nowhere. And you know, it's basically like the RKO out of nowhere. Like she just comes out (laughs) of nowhere and then, like, the wind – and then, like, the music stops. She does her little flip trick that she did with Brienne, stabs him. And it was great. And it was great foreshadowing because you go back to season three. I don't know if you saw this online. Like, when her and Melisandre met, you yeah. know, in season three, she did the whole thing where you're going to be – you you know, eyes are going to be staring back at you that you're going to shut. And then she said to her and that scene – and blue eyes. And then, like, it just snapped in Arya. Like, I have to go kill the Night King. Yeah, You know what I mean? Cause that those where his eyes are blue. And that's, that's why I knew something was up. Cause she ran out. I was like, Oh, something's going to happen. I kept trying to figure out like what the hell was going on with Brand, Cause Bran wore the whole episode. I'm like, where is he going? And I, kept I still thinking,
2: don't know. I that's what I still can't figure that shit out. That's that yeah. shit is just weird to me. Yeah. The brown eyes, blue eyes, green eyes thing going back to mm-hmm. season three. That was definitely wild as hell. Again, the expectations were just so high that I understand why it was so hard to live up to. Let me ask you this. Was there was a, there was a point in that last 10 minutes you were talking about it. I legitimately, knowing that this is no Disney series, it's not a fairy tale and the good guys don't always win. We've seen that too many mm-hmm. times on this show. I legitimately thought at one point that everybody was going to die except for yeah. maybe John and Daenerys. I thought Jamie was gone. I thought Lady Brienne was gone. Patrick was gone. Genju were gone. I thought they were all gone, with including Arya and the Hound, everybody, with the exception of maybe Jonathan and who somehow end up escaping. I have no idea, but it certainly seemed there was a point near the end where everybody was about to die, and I felt oh, like yeah. they were going to. I, it was believable. It was credible to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought everyone was going to die prior to the episode. Like, I had eight, nine main characters dying that I thought were going to die. I mean, Yeah, they did, I saw that. Like, <laughs> They did, like, half of that, which was still, I don't know, I was still fine with it. Like I, I think like
2: that a, might be a disappointment for some people. Again, I'm not a, I said at yeah, the top, I'm not, I'm those not, those not a sadist like or anything, but I would have, I thought one or two more mainstream characters would have died than they did. And I think because that didn't happen, that's a reason for somebody who, at this point, like you said, it's nitpicking, you're finding a reason to criticize this show if your criticism is you don't think enough people died.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's still three episodes left where all those people can die. Look, a lot enough. Pe- look, Jorah and Theon have been on that show since the beginning, like the first episode they've been in there and they've been focal points of that series. You know, I don't give a shit about, about Ed, you know, the Ranger, like fuck him. He's kind of been a, you know, <laughs> he's like the fifth henchman, like for Jon Snow's little fucking NWO crew. Like he's fucking <laughs> Virgil. But, uh but like, you know, it was, it, it was fine. Like I said, that, but the end was the, the best part. How, how Lady Mormont went out was badass with her. Very. Fucking, that was, I mean, I watched it again last night and it was definitely, it still held up. Like everything was great about it. It was, it was well shot. Arya, like Arya was definitely the MVP of that episode. No, I mean, they had like, it. she, I mean, not just because she killed the Night King, but you're talking about her going through the, you know, having her little, like they had a the little sequence where she was kicking people's asses on the on the wall of the, of Winterfell and her in the, in the library with all the dead people. Like that was like straight out of a horror movie, you know, the, the whole thing was great. I mean, if, if, you know, you mentioned this before and the other thing, if you want to be nitpicky is yeah. Like how did, how did like Sam Tarly like survive this? <laughs> like, how did he survive? Like he should have been dead like 87 different times or even Jamie a little bit. Like how did Jamie survive? He's got one hand and the whole thing is like, you know, those are like little nitpicky things. Like I'm not going to, I won't remember that and go, well, you know, but again, it was a blowout. Like it was a great episode where, you know, you had to like hear little moments. Oh, they could have done this a little bit. Like those are the things I would say, like, give me more ghosts. And maybe, I don't know, like, <laughs> like you said, it was kind of funny at the end. Like they're battling like a hundred whites, it feels like, and they're against the wall. I was like, how are they still surviving? But they survived. And, you know, I think it's to the point to where we all want them to survive. So we'll talk ourselves into it. Yeah, it's a little far-fetched. How is how is the guy with one hand surviving? But you know what? Fuck it, we don't care because we want him to survive. You know what I mean?
2: Right. All right, rest in peace, by the way, to Friendzone King Jura, Ed, Lord Burek, Lyanna Mormont, we mentioned her, Theon, Melisandra, six in all. And given the stakes and the, and the length of the battle, doesn't seem like that much. I thought a few more would die, especially Greyworm. Anyway, One more question, and then I'm going to let you go. Still got a half a season left. Obviously, this is all leading to King's Landing now. Now that's become clear that the Night King and the Undead have been defeated. Jamie versus Cersei, that's going to be an incredible moment to see. You still got the whole Jon and Daenerys conundrum, how that's going to be dealt with and played out. I still think Tyrion's going to have a very big role over these last three episodes. What happens with Sansa is going to be very interesting. Maybe them two hook up. And do something together, I have no idea, but there's lots of layers left. What are you anticipating going forward over these last three episodes?
0: Chaos, I guess. It's gonna be chaotic. I think man, I still I'm still into a team that I think Sansa and Tyrion are going to be on the throne or they're gonna be a big part because look, the the whole thing right now is being foreshadowed. Like aside from you know, waiting for this whole lep like, you know, this is like the first half of the season was all about the Night King preparing for this. That's what it was more about than anything that was happening in, in uh, King's landing. Now it shifts to King's landing. And I think it's, it's interesting to see what's happening with Tyrion because he, most of, of what has happened this season has been him kind of bitching how he's been treated. Like he's been kind of like, you know, he bitched that he had to go in the crypts. He wasn't happy about that. Right. You know, he's like, I, I live the little battle of, of Blackwater. He also talked about it in the last episode, like, you know, her, them threatening to take his badge away. Like, it does seem like he's getting a little bit like pissed off and jealous of how he's being treated. And Sansa's already like kind of putting it out there. Like, yeah, you're a good guy. We won't, it won't work because you're loyal to the dragon queen. So, you know, there could be stuff that happens with them fighting amongst, you know, Daenerys and John, especially with their whole ant shit going on. You know, I, I think that could be a, that's going to be a big issue to watch going forward. Um, yeah, it's it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be it's gonna be crazy. Like, I, it's weird. Like, I haven't really wrapped my head. I mean, too much about the end game for this. Like, I have a little bit, but it's been mostly everything going back to last season has been about the Night King. Like, it's been kind of like the the preparing for him coming there. Like, that's 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 been Jon Snow's arc really since like last season started. Like, we have to prepare. We have to prepare. That's yeah. like all he he's he's given a shit about. Now it's over. And now it's like, oh, okay, we got to reset, and it's like another reset, you know, with the show, which has a lot of these resets after a big battle, after someone pivotal dies, you know, it's like a reset, and it's like, all right, what's going to happen now, you know? But uh, I do think the Jamie thing. I, I, I'm, I'm predicting Jamie, Jamie's going to kill Cersei. I've, I'm predicting that. I think he's going to kill her now, you know, and he's going to be like the the King Slayer, Queen Slayer, who the hell knows? I could also see something where she gives I, I i'll predict this i could see her giving birth to her kid and everything coming full circle where someone maybe Tyrion, maybe maybe even jamie even though i just said he's gonna kill her but like maybe they take the baby and escape with the baby and like go to pentos like kind of like how the series started where like Daenerys and her douchebag brother were, were at pent were you know across the narrow sea because you know when the mad king died they all left you know like they had the they had to leave because Robert Ratham was going to kill all of them so that could be like the full circle how the series ends where they go to they go across the narrow sea and they like escape and like Cersei's heir is like a kid or going to be a child there like you know kind of like that in a way so it's going to be crazy like it's going to be it's going to be I think a little it's going to slow down now a bit like because obviously that's, that episode was huge and I think it's going to slow down and I'm assuming the last episode is going to be the Battle of King's Landing you know where they're all going to that's what it seems like. They're all going down there now and they're going to have a battle. So it's going to be crazy.
2: All right. That is going to do it for this episode. Big thank you again. Chris Trapasso, CBSSports.com. Solid Buffalo Bills draft insight. Got to know a lot more about these prospects. Thanks as well to my man, Joe. This segment started and ended with Game of Thrones. Phenomenal episode on Sunday. Epic. Cannot wait to see how this series ends over the last couple weeks. Guys, if you haven't done so already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. When you subscribe, new episodes automatically get sent directly to your phone, your computer, whatever device you use within literally seconds of being released. That's the reason and the benefit of being a subscriber. You're going to get it before anyone else. Take a quick second, rate and review the show. I know it doesn't sound like much, but I say this every week. It really helps me grow this podcast tremendously. You can find us anywhere podcasts are found. Google, Apple, Heart, Radio, Stitcher, Spotify, all those things. You can also subscribe, by the way, to our new YouTube page. Just go on YouTube, type in Moral Analytics Podcast, click on any video, hit subscribe there, click that little bell next to it so you'll get notifications. I got highlight clips from current and past episodes up on there. Going to start having more original audio content on there as well. And then last but not least, staying with this Asking You to Do Stuff theme, go ahead and follow me on Twitter, at PamaranTweets. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back with a new episode on Friday. I'll have plenty to talk about. I'll catch you on the flippity-flip. Bye.